Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, gentle listeners. Uh, today, this is a special episode. I am joined by my friend and colleague, Zach Cramley. Zach, say hello to the History of England listeners. Hello, History of England listeners. It's so lovely to be back with you. I hope you're all well. You have heard Zach's voice before, I think, everybody. I was um, He was very nice and took the job of doing Bannockburn <laughs> off me, which I couldn't possibly do as a red-blooded Englishman, obviously. <laughs> So Zach is joining us because we've just done a few episodes on Europe in the 17th century and that fantastic story of the 30 years war. I say fantastic story, slightly gruesome story too. And Zach not only is the author of the podcast When Diplomacy Fails, but he is also a historian, a published historian, that is to say, uh, having produced a book on the 30 years war called For God or the Devil. Mm-hmm. And now we've got a new venture, I understand, Zach, which we'll talk about at the end a bit, which is, well, tell us quickly about it. <laughs> well, uh, let's just say if you couldn't get enough of the 30 Years War in book form or in podcast form, I decided to approach it from a completely different angle and go with historical fiction. Because in my view, there's not enough stories like historical fiction stories set in that era. It's really quite empty. So I thought I'd just try my hand at it, and I've been, unsurprisingly, very obsessed ever since. Very good. Well, we'll talk about that, and that's fantastic, and I totally agree. It's uh, just an amazing period, and it, crying out for a historical novel. So, but first of all, we're going to talk about the Thirty Years' War. Zach, I've given the listeners a sort of general, rather bumbling overview. <laughs> um, so, let's see, you're going to give us the real, real stuff, okay? Mm. It's going to be brilliant. And it's going to be insightful and you're going to wow everybody. Otherwise, you're fired. Right? <laughs> no, no pressure, obviously. Oh, of course. OK, <laughs> so um, uh, tell us a little bit, bit, bit about the 30 Years War. So if it's uh, what caused it. So was it a religious conflict, as I think once I was taught? Or what were that? What were the other factors that uh, made it start? Yeah, oh boy. I mean, that's really the ultimate question. And the very unsatisfactory answer is that it it really depends. Like, religion was a very important part, very, very important part. But it it was a war that lasted 30 years. And in that time, the very kind of character of it changed. If you were to go back to the very beginning of it in 1618, when the defenestration of Prague happened and the Bohemians threw the Habsburg representatives out the windows, it was 
it, it appeared then like a religious conflict because this was Protestants throwing Catholics out of a window because they didn't want to follow their rules anymore and they wanted to have religious freedoms for themselves. But even then, that's a bit too simplistic because like further afield, the Habsburgs were a Catholic dynasty, uh, but the Bohemians themselves soon started to rely on people who weren't just Protestants. And when different powers got involved in this very small Bohemian conflict at the start for like the first two or three years, then things very quickly started to change. So the the big, big thing that happened that turned this revolt into really a war was that one of the princes within Germany, uh, an elector, so essentially he had one vote to decide when, like, who the next emperor would be, and he was one of seven people who had who had the right to do that. He decided to go for the Bohemian crown because the Bohemians went all the way after throwing the Hasbrugs out the window. They decided to eject their king as well, and uh, once they did that, then they looked for a new one and they offered it to Frederick, whose family had a long, healthy history of being opposed to the Habsburgs for various reasons. So imagine the situation where the Protestants gather all these votes together. At this stage, you already had a kind of a kind of tie in the voting. So if there's seven votes available, there's going to have to be a deciding vote. At this point, there was three Protestant electors and four Catholic. If you get to four Protestant and three Catholic, though, that means that a Protestant could conceivably be the Holy Roman Emperor, which would be the Habsburgs' worst nightmare, because the Habsburgs wanted that office for themselves. So just from that explanation, you can see that it was partly religious, but also partly constitutional, and yes, very, very messy, because in order to understand it, you have to really understand how the Holy Roman Empire worked, which, of course, is a challenge. If you have ever looked into it, you'll see that it's yeah. a very uh, very complex polity. And as I think it was Voltaire who said, it's neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. And, and that's only really scratching the surface. There's so much about it that it's just, it's, it's unlike anything else that's ever been. So it doesn't fit in any kind of convenient box. The best way to describe it is kind of like a federation that kind of looked to the emperor. But even by the 1600s, that wasn't really true anymore. And of course, the Reformation had shattered all of that. The status quo of people like uh, adhering to what the emperor wanted became very different when you saw uh, God and and life in general very differently to how he saw it because you were Lutheran and he was Catholic. So all those things, those kind of problems bubbled over in the 1500s. There was a kind of temporary peace there called the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, but that was kind of aimed at like settling the borders and saying, okay, this is where the Catholics are. This is where the Protestants are. The problem was that in the interim between 1555 to 1618, the Protestants didn't sit still and they really did. The, their creeds spread throughout Europe to the point that in Austria itself, there were Protestant revolts against the Habsburg uh, religious laws. So what followed then was the Counter-Reformation. And yeah, we can, of course, we can, of course, get into that and everything else. But there's so much, there's so many balls in the air at this point, like trying to juggle them all to explain it is very difficult. Now, what I just talked about there with the Bohemians and and Frederick is the individual who's the Elector Palatine who goes to the Bohemian crown. And he probably thinks when he's doing it that it'll be successful because he's got all these people telling him that they'll support him. Everyone from Venice to England to now, some people are horrified that he's going ahead with it, but he seems to he seems to think to this day it's it's debated exactly how much he actually knew what he was doing. But there was a good book recently that uh, by Brennan Purcell who kind of established Frederick as as his own man. So that's just uh, that's just some background into his character. I find him very very interesting. But mm. e- even his little venture there. Obviously, it's the same story with Gavrido Princip. Gavrido Princip didn't know he was starting the First World War, just like Frederick didn't know that he was starting the Thirty Years' War. The conflict that was probably expected was probably another Bohemian revolt, and maybe Frederick's house would get squashed, and then he'd supplicate himself to the emperor. But the problem, of course, was that he didn't supplicate himself to the emperor, and other powers got involved. And before long, the supposedly religious or constitutional conflict just didn't even make sense anymore. And it was rather than constitutional or religious reasons, it was really just fought for power and for money and for influence and for status. 
from 1635 onwards, just as one example, you had the Calvinist Dutch, Catholic France, and Lutheran Sweden fighting against the uh, Catholic Habsburgs in Austria and uh, Spain, and also Bavaria as well. So that was the, the the three against three, if you can imagine the Avengers assembling, I suppose, the, right. the journeys that brought France and the Netherlands and, and Sweden all to that point were in themselves fascinating stories. So, yeah, there's a lot to pick through, uh, as you can tell. <laughs> so the uh, motivations for the war, or indeed the prolonging of the war, changed over time, essentially. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And even in each character that got involved. So it's actually fairly straightforward to split the war into phases. A lot of historians have done it. So in the beginning, 1618 to... About 1624, there's like the so-called Palatine phase because Frederick, the elector we mentioned earlier, he was called the Elector Palatine and his lands were basically straddling along the Rhine. So when the uh, when the, the, the venture for the Bohemian crown started and then the emperor decided to make war on him, Frederick quickly found he had really no allies at all and his lands were occupied by the Spanish, which if you know your European geography, you'll know that the Rhine leads up to essentially the Dutch border. So by occupying all those lands there, the Spanish were in an ideal position for the resumption of their war with the Dutch, which again is a whole other story. That happens in 1621. But that 80 years war between the Spanish and Dutch is just one one avenue of the 30 years war. That's really, really very important to it. But that that's part of, part of my idea is that... It, I mean, I'm fascinated by it. Some people probably find all these threads overwhelming, but... I just think it's incredible that there's so many different threads. But yeah, so that that first phase, 1618 to 24, Frederick never really goes away. He's always a pain in, in the backside of the Habsburgs. He's always trying to find new allies. And he thinks that he's found one in 1625 when the King of Denmark gets involved. The King of Denmark's main concern is that the emperor is moving too far to the north. He's moving too far towards the Baltic. And there's a real concern that he's going to try and take over the Baltic. And in line with that, he's also concerned that his sons, who aren't in line for the Danish throne, won't have those bishoprics that they want in in northern Germany either. So the land, the German lands directly below the Danish border, again, it kind of helps to have an idea of, uh, of European geography. But even without that, we can probably understand that a king would want to protect his son's inheritance. So that's certainly one element of his reason for intervening. He was also a very wealthy man, the King of Denmark was, because he controlled what were called the Sound, the the straits that you had to cross into to get through to the Baltic and trade with those powers there. So all, all of that stuff, very, very important. And unfortunately for the King of Denmark, though, things don't go so well and he gets overwhelmed by larger armies than anyone has ever seen. Instead of the emperor fighting fair, what he kind of does is he uh, hires his own sort of private army and he hires a man known as uh, Albrecht of Wallenstein in order to do it. And what Wallenstein does is he uses the lands that he'd been given from the Bohemian Revolt where all of the rebels, exiles and stuff had their lands parceled up and and handed out. And Wallenstein makes himself this self-made man and he just, he overwhelms the Danes with armies as large as 110,000 men by some records, which were bigger. And we'll, we'll talk about the devastation later on, but that's just one one reason for it is because armies these size were never meant to be uh, sustainable at all. So that, that essentially kicks the Danes out. And once that happens in 1629, people look a bit anxiously around And then the emperor decides that he's going to turn back the clock. He's going to bring in this thing called the Edict of Restitution, which will set back the religious clock of Europe essentially to 1555 before the Protestants made all that headway. And this obviously horrifies all the people who have made that headway since. And as a result of that, and many other reasons too, the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, who I'm sure many of us have heard of, he decides at this moment to get involved. And at that point, he'd already had several uh, incentives to. One of them was for the own glory and, and, and power of his house. Another was because Wallenstein, who we mentioned, had actually sent some soldiers to fight against Sweden because Sweden at that point in the mid to late 1620s was fighting against Poland. 
And yeah, as I said, a, an awful lot of threads going on. But if you can just hold on to a few of them, uh, it, it all makes much more sense as to why these yeah. these powers were getting involved. Yeah, so 1630 to about 34 was the kind of so-called Swedish phase. The Swedes do very, very well initially. They completely upset the power balance. Gustavus Adolphus achieves some incredible victories, most notably in the Battle of Breitenfeld in September 1631. And after that, then the following year, there's an awful lot of standoffish uh, behavior because Wallenstein, who we mentioned before, he falls foul of the emperor, but then the emperor realizes he needs him. So he tries to call him back. And then Wallenstein has a showdown with the King of Sweden and the Battle of Lutzen in late uh, 1632. And the King of Sweden wins that battle, but unfortunately he actually dies in battle. So... As a result of that, the Swedish war effort is kind of headless and the Habsburgs gradually regain control to the point that France feels like it has to get involved. And up to that point, the French, uh, led nominally by King Louis Thirteenth, but actually its foreign policy was mostly controlled by Cardinal Richelieu. And the Cardinal decides that the time has come to stop fighting Cold Wars, which we'll, of course, be able to talk about. And it's time to confront the Habsburgs head on. So France makes war on Spain and on Habsburg Austria at the same time. And after a few shaky years, by 1640, uh, things start to go against the Habsburgs. And then from about the mid-1640s, everyone goes to the cities of Osnabrück and Münster to hammer out the Peace of Westphalia. And a few agonizing years later of, of fighting and negotiating, you have the actual Peace of Westphalia itself which ends war for all time and everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. War to end all wars, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That's a great summary. I have a, one question from all of that. Sure. So I'm told that the body of Gustavus Adolphus had um, a knife wound as well as the bullet wound that killed him and a bullet in the back. Mm-hmm. So tell me through that. Yeah, I like... Is there a conspiracy theory about that? Well, it's it's funny you mention that because in the actual, what I'll be talking about later on, the historical fiction series I have planned, there is some conspiratorial elements in that. And certainly when our, our story gets to that stage, I might in, implement some aspects of it. But I think it's more likely that when you're in the thick of it, and Gustavus Adolphus had a habit of placing himself in the thick of it in his conflict with Poland before he'd been injured several times, there was actually a, a bullet in his shoulder if memory serves, I think was his left shoulder. And as a result of that, it was so uncomfortable for him to wear the traditional soldier's garb of the of the buff coat and the and the the breastplate and everything else that he decided to just wear a cloak instead, uh, which didn't offer super protection as much as any protection would be of use against musket balls. But I think... It, was, it, it wasn't a cloak of invisibility then. Of, no. Sorry, I'm stopping Sean right here. No, I think, that, I think that actually would have been convenient because the first thing you think when you see a king leading his men on the battlefield is quick kill him and then the rest of the men will, uh, will collapse, their morale will collapse. Now, the morale didn't collapse. They still won the battle and it was a very bloody battle fought in mist and fog and horrible conditions. But I think Gustavus just placed himself in danger too many times and he was warned many times before he actually fell. So... In a way, you could say right. he he got what was coming to him purely because he refused to listen to her. He thought he was invincible. Yeah. And especially after winning such a, incredible victories beforehand, he really thought he was God's own uh, own agent in, in the world to rid the world of the Habsburg menace on Sweden's terms, of course. <laughs> but uh, well, we've, had a, we've had a few of those in history, haven't we? And then there's... Yes. There's another, there's another guy, a fascinating character in the story, which is uh, Count Wallenstein, who seems mm. to be an extremely colourful mm-hmm. character. Yeah, uh, yeah. He becomes a copper in the end, doesn't he? He doesn't end well for the lad. No, there seems to be a common theme here of, of self-made men not doing particularly well. But in Wallenstein's case, he, he was in a very difficult position because even though he was a Catholic and even though he was loyal to the emperor, he realized you could only push Europe so far. So the Edict of Restitution I mentioned earlier, which pushed Europe's religious clock back, clock back to 1555, Wallenstein was very against that. He was also against the idea of the emperor fighting 
the King of Spain's wars in North Italy because that would force him to send soldiers down there when he really didn't want to. And another thing, Wallenstein had been banging his head against the wall, warning the emperor, watch out for Sweden, watch out for Sweden. They're going to intervene. They're going to intervene soon. As soon as the war with Poland is wrapped up, Gustavus Adolphus is going gonna, is gonna to come. But instead of preparing for that, because the emperor wanted to have his son guaranteed a successor, because Wallenstein was very unpopular, because he had to support such large armies, the emperor agreed to basically fire Wallenstein in return for the promise to uh, to get his son guaranteed as his designated heir. Now, the problem with that, of course, is once Sweden landed and everything hit the fan, the emperor begged him to return. And even though Wallenstein was ill with gout and no doubt weary of war and probably a bit resentful, he still tried to do his duty. And the problem, again, was that when he was at the head of these armies, after a short time when the emergency had passed, the whispers started to return in Vienna and the conspiracies to that he was supposedly involved in uh, started to swirl around Vienna as well. And it is, there's conflicting reports as, as to exactly what Wallenstein did in the end. Some, I, I think it is said that he actually did offer to join the anti-Hamsburg side in the last few months of his life. Um, but as far as I remember... Oh, I did not realise that, actually. He was... It was looked as though he was going to jump ship, was it? It did, yeah. Now, he tried to position himself as a kind of third party for a little while. It, it, this all happened in the space of about three or four months. Um, in, in the last few months of his life, when he realized that the emperor was uh, moving away from relying on him and wanted to rely instead on his own son uh, to command, um, you had what was called the two Ferdinands, one of which was the younger brother of the King of Spain. The other was the... Uh, the other was the soon-to-be Emperor Ferdinand III. So those two Ferdinands actually defeated the uh, the Swedes in 1634. That was what really pushed the Swedish army back. And after that, it seemed like the Emperor didn't really need Wallenstein anymore. By that stage, Wallenstein was actually dead. But the Emperor, I think, realized that he couldn't have his cake and eat it. He would bring Wallenstein back for an emergency to solve the problems, but once that problem was out of the way and there was no need to keep this guy around anymore who made the emperor very unpopular, he was happy to throw him under the bus. And not to say, of course, that Wallenstein was uh, without fault in all of this. He was a very ambitious man and had certainly stepped on a lot of toes to to get to where he got to. But I I think Wallenstein's idea of, of keeping things a bit more moderate and not inflaming passions and thinking strategically rather than thinking personally about like like getting rid of your army when there's another one about to invade it just it seems bananas and and Wallenstein pointed it out but he wasn't listened to and in the end he he uh he fell to an assassin's blade I believe there was an, a, a lot of Irish people uh among the assassins who were who who went and delivered the killing blow yeah <laughs> yes I understand there was some Scottish and Irish mercenaries of course quite yeah. a lot of Scots went right in the war didn't they an awful lot an awful lot yeah and it's actually interesting you mentioned that because I was reading an awful lot of uh, Steve Murdoch's stuff and Steve is this really oh, yes. Yes. he's a really good historian he's looked a lot about Scottish involvement and, and British involvement generally but um, he's University of St Andrews and he's uh, done some fantastic stuff looking at mercenaries and Really, like, Scottish involvement in Sweden's armies had been going on since the 1610s. Maybe, maybe they, they imagined it was a great way to, to earn glory and everything else, but certainly by a lot of them who had been veterans with Gustavus Adolphus through his Polish wars were still with him when he landed in Germany. Um, the likes of uh, Monroe and Alexander Leslie and... A whole load of other ones as well, like that their names don't immediately come to me, but a yeah. s- strong Scottish representation, absolutely, uh, in the Sweden's well, armies. Of course, any historian that goes to St Andrews is bound to be uh, electric. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so, um, very good. So it's been described as the first modern world. Sorry. It's been described as the first modern war, hasn't it? The Thirty Years' mm. War. Why is that? Uh, I think there's probably various reasons for it. It might just seem like 
a convenient kind of designation. I mean, even if people haven't heard of the Thirty Years' War, a lot of history enthusiasts will probably have heard of 1648. And 1648, the Peace of Westphalia, is often cast as this moment when, like, the modern world began and sovereignty began and everything else. So maybe it just seems fitting to lump it in together with the war that preceded it. But in my view and in, in the view of many other historians, like the Peace of Westphalia is really overrated, like really, really overrated. I mean, like the, the idea that it established state sovereignty or that it brought an end to all religious wars or even some people claim that, oh, that was the that was the peace treaty that made Dutch independence official, which it wasn't at all. But all these different ideas surrounding it um, come from this guy called Leo Gross, who wrote an article, I think it was, I think it was in... 1948 in in marking the 300th anniversary but he basically blew it way out of proportion and and his claims have since been like challenged but they seem to have stuck in the kind of popular mind people see 1648 and they think okay that's that's after that point things become more modern but within the actual war itself there was a lot of change going on so like warfare as we know it obviously now is completely different to how it looked in the 1600s. And even from 1618 to 1648, warfare changed an awful lot. There were huge reforms in the musketry drills. There were huge reforms in how cavalry was used and how artillery was used. Those three branches of the army in 1618, they weren't necessarily seen as three separate branches. Like artillerymen were seen more as magicians who were very careful of protecting the secrets of their craft rather than an essential, I mean, yes, they would have been brought on campaign, but many commanders did not quite understand the linkage between using cannon and and attacking in force. And it took innovators, mostly the Dutch, to actually hammer that point home. The reason why uh, the, the drill started to become the most popular was largely because of the Dutch really tending to it but also publishing a whole load of drill manuals to show even the even the civilian how he could go with in 43 simple steps how he could go from civilian to full-blown soldier and the thought went if he was surrounded by comrades who did the same thing they would be able to stand in ranks fire their weapons walk to the back reload and then the ranks behind them would follow suit but even that idea of doing that at the time was actually seen as somewhat dishonorable because you were showing your back to the enemy and that wasn't a very good thing to do. It actually took a a bit of inspiration from the ancients because at that time, I mean, all all the aftermath of the Renaissance and everything like that, people would have looked to ancient Rome for inspiration. And Maurice of Orange, the the easiest way to cast him as kind of like the military leader of the Dutch Republic, his cousin had this obsession with Roman tactics and tried to, t- tried to track down as many different translations of Roman texts as he could, because he believed that in order to beat the Spanish, the Dutch had to be as innovative as possible. And he really did develop, or he helped to develop that uh, musket drill. And in the Battle of Newport in the year 1600, so I know this goes 18 years before the Thirty Years' War, but that was the first battle in July 1600. That was the first battle where the military musket drill, as we would recognize it, really met the battlefield uh, with the Spanish Turkio, which or Turthio, which was the, like, think pikemen squares with musketeers standing on the outside of them. And that's a pretty good idea of how the Turthio would have worked. And the Spanish Turthio up to that point had really dominated uh, all of Europe. It really kind of had a century of, of domination. And really the Dutch emphasis on firepower is what eventually... Uh, served as the nail in the coffin. So the Dutch won the Battle of Newport and gradually, because I promise this tangent is going somewhere, gradually the uh, the, the drill tactics were adopted by, by the rest of Europe. Now it took some time for that to happen, but you find that by the year 1700, the Tertio is, is gone, pikemen are pretty much gone, and everyone is focusing on how to deal as much firepower as possible. There's more of an emphasis as well on, on soldiers simply standing in the line and firing like this idea of forbearance and having your ranks stand up for longer than the enemies can while you're getting bombarded with horrible musket balls that can cause 
terrible injuries. So it really becomes a game of nerve almost and a game of chicken. Um, of course, skill is still involved, but rather than accuracy, they focused on on firepower. And rather than kind of squares that contained all the different elements together, commanders started to realize during the Thirty Years' War that the most important thing was to get down as much firepower as possible. And Gustavus Adolphus did a great job with that because he started to make uh, his soldiers do it in three ranks. It wouldn't just be one rank fires, wheels to the back. The next rank fires, wheels to the back. He decided to make the first rank lie down, the second rank kneel down, and the third rank standing, and all three of them fire at the same time. And all of them then go to the back, and then the next three do the same thing. And he innovated with artillery as well. He brought around much smaller calibers of like three-pounder guns, for example. So these could be actually moved by the men if really necessary, but most of the time they only needed a single horse. Because one of the real problems with artillery at that point was that the pieces were just too big. They required something insane, like 20 to 30 horses just to be moved around. That was for the siege artillery. For the field artillery, it was actually, even though we might think they'd be seen as essential aspects of war, a lot of the times they weren't used because they were so difficult to bring to bear. Now, all of these things that I just discussed, think of the 30 Years' War as a kind of melting pot where all of these ideas can be kind of tried on the battlefield. I describe it in For God is the Devil as a kind of uh, kind of a la- laboratory, uh, easy for me to say, a laboratory, and there's so many opportunities to explore this laboratory because there's so many battles that happen. Um, and even then, with siegecraft, there is an awful lot of sieges going on, so Europeans get to perfect how uh, how to take settlements, how to defend settlements, and siege design improves in pace with the tactics of the attacker. So yeah, I mean, modern war, if we think of modern war, we might think of 20th century wars, but the, the so-called early modern period, some measure it as, as starting from the peace of Westphalia. So if you were to do that, then you could argue that the the preceding conflict in the Thirty Years' War played a huge part in kind of leading us to, to the more modern ways of making war, if that makes sense. Without the kind of what 30 years of, of hell, there probably wouldn't have been as as much yeah. kind of refinement later on. Um, I suppose one of the reasons I've always assumed they call it the first modern war is also the level of devastation mm. that the mm-hmm. war caused. Yeah, yeah. And devastation is really key to really understand why, until the 20th century, to understand why the Thirty Years' War held such sway over the German psyche. Even after the Napoleonic Wars and everything else, there was still nothing nothing at all, really, that compared to what devastation happened in the, in the Thirty Years' War. I mean, some the, the figures are disputed, but what's not disputed is that it was really awful for civilians in Germany, particularly if we imagine the Holy Roman empire is kind of including most of Germany, maybe portions of North Italy, uh, some portions then of, of, of the Rhine as well. The population of the Holy Roman empire in the year 1600 was between 18 to 20 million. And by 1650, it was between 11 to 13 million. So by some accounts, it nearly halved by others, Still, a devastating loss of life, yeah. and it wasn't I mean, I, just. I've, I've always thought the parallel. Um, I've always wondered why uh, the UK is so obsessed by the First World War, hmm. and it seems to me there's a sort of parallel there that there's this extraordinary, unbelievable amount of devastation that yeah. nobody was used to. Mm-hmm. Um, shocks everybody, um, and I, I kind of feel there's a parallel there in a way that. You know, the level of devastation was just incredibly high. It was, yeah. And it was unprecedented as well. Like we said about Wallenstein earlier, his army being 110,000, the contemporary records it as something like 111,700 or something like that. But it's obscene, the levels that they got to. And they were never, like, the land couldn't support. It wasn't designed to support or cultivated to support armies of that size. So if you think about... Of course, I guess it's not just the size of the army also. It's the size of the camp followers. There's a a massive 
city that accompanies them, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And of course, the more people that accompany an army, the more likely diseases to come along. There's awful accounts of one siege in northern Italy. Basically, the survivors or people who endured that siege afterwards and went on to move back across Europe, they spread plague from that city all across Europe after that. And like disease was probably as dangerous a a killer as in fact, disease was the biggest killer in in this conflict. But of course, disease was uh, being susceptible to disease was a byproduct of your starvation, which in itself was a byproduct of not having any food because the land is ravaged or the food is all stolen by the armies. So all these things are connected and they make this horrific cocktail of suffering and misery, like reading some of the sources and it it can seem a bit difficult to get your hands on them. There's a really good source book by uh, Peter H. Wilson. It's just called 30 Years War Source Book, but that's really been very useful for me. I I used it a lot. If you're you're German speaking, then the 30 Years War can be very navigable for you to uh, find great sources in. But if like me or you're unilingual, Uh, which is a polite way of saying I'm awful at any other language, Uh, then it can be very difficult to kind of get a handle on how things actually were back then for the people. But the, the level of suffering was utterly unprecedented. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And uh, it really was the defining moment for for Germany and up until 1866 the kind of impact of it where Prussia defeated Austria and went on to dominate Germany and Austria had its own little patch of of Europe and the Balkans and everything else. It was a seriously important part of of German national identity as well, whether you were Catholic or or Protestant. And yeah, I think had it not been obviously alternative history and everything else, but the, the 30 years war, the only thing that could like literally replace it in the national mind was the horrors of the 20th century. So that should just go to show how, how big a deal it was. Yeah. And presumably life, I mean, in that story, the life of villagers dealing with this plague of locusts and illness and all the rest of it is obviously central, but I, Mm. I kind of assume life wasn't great for soldiers either. No, not particularly. I mean, if you've ever watched uh, anything like anything like Sharp, for instance, or anything like that, anything that shows even even a glimpse of the life of the soldier, and I know that's the 1800s in Sharp's case, but things didn't material like change all that much in terms of how susceptible you were to disease or how much marching you had to do. And the punishments got more inventive now at, at this at this point with, with soldiering and everything else because the armies weren't uniform, because they, they marched a lot of the times they were uh, employed or brought in by people outside. So, for example, if, if a Scottish commander decided that he wanted to join Sweden's army and he wanted to bring X amount of soldiers with him, he would have nominal command of those soldiers. They'd be expected to follow his orders, but this Scottish commander would be expected to follow the King of Sweden's orders, if that makes sense. So the the two nations in that sense wouldn't deal with each other all that much, but it was a very, it was very difficult, uh, a very difficult time to be a soldier, especially if you're one of those unfortunate fellows who has to march over land that's already been marched over several times. You're no more likely to find food that isn't there than a civilian would have been. So, in situations like those, there's loads of different cases of soldiers like eating grass or bark from trees or rope or anything that they can find. And then being forced then to to go to war. The only difference is you could conceivably escape and at least you had a weapon. And there was an element as the war went on. uh, It would take some time now, only until really Louis XIV and the later 1600s would the French, for instance, 
get a handle on uh, on supplying their soldiers properly and planning ahead. But after 20 or 25 years of constant warfare, the, the Habsburgs really were just letting their soldiers live off the land. And once they lived off land for long enough, as Wallenstein discovered, they had to move on. And if there were not enough places to move on to, or if the sight of 100,000 men coming over the hill didn't inspire happiness in the, the awaiting population, they decided to close their doors, then you had to start a siege. So it, it really did. Now, generally, they were intimidated into submission, but that didn't mean they were happy with the situation at all. And you had this simmering discontent. And that explains why when the Swedes did achieve their victories, they really achieved one major victory in September 1631. And then from throughout 1632, it was just a case of all of the Habsburg's former allies just rolling over and Sweden's king marching into Munich in southern Germany, like in Bavaria in southern Germany, marching mm. into Munich. And uh, yeah, I mean, he wouldn't have been able to do that had the Habsburgs not treated the people mm. so badly. And I think there, there's an element of that to, to remember. I mean, war is hell in, in all situations. But really, I think before, um, I'm not going to say before the Geneva Convention, but certainly before technologies and everything else and trends made it more uh, endurable. It, it really was a terrible time to be a soldier. I do not envy these people, especially if they they were sold this idea of adventure. And it would have been an adventure, but as long as you were on the right side, the winning side, perhaps it would have been better than uh, than before. So, so a pretty horrendous situation. And I think one of the features, I think, of the Thirty Years' War is that there's so much siege warfare, and mm. of course. That presumably led to more and more disease. Um, there are, I suppose, there's one big atrocity that stands out, which mm-hmm. is the sack of Magdeburg. Um, yeah. But I suppose apart from that, it's what there's. It's just a, you know, the, the constant devastation you've been talking about of villages of a group of soldiers going in and taking what they want and that sort of thing. There's no no other great, you know, enormous events. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that is true to to an extent, but um, it's often useful getting like different perspectives. So you can see with the different, the 30 Years War historians, they have kind of, I'm not saying they pick favorites or anything else, but they'll tend to emphasize points that others may not. So Peter H. Wilson, for example, isn't a huge fan of the Swedes because he considers them to be more destructive because in the lands that they lived in, in Sweden in the early 1600s wasn't a particularly developed country. So when they started landing in all these rich German cities, they went a bit nuts and started taking everything that wasn't nailed down. It wasn't that severe and they were supposed to adhere to a code of conduct. But the uh, the city of Frankfurt on the Oder, now not not the, the Frankfurt we think of as probably Frankfurt on the Main, which was the, the main city of Frankfurt that had never been captured by a foreign army, but Frankfurt on the Oder was further to think of like kind of uh, north, north, uh, northeast Germany was was mm-hmm. where Frankfurt on the Oder would have been. But the Swedes tried to besiege that for a while, and the residents put up a fight, and then basically they broke into the city and 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 they essentially destroyed it and leveled it completely, and there was really very little quarter shown. And then Magdeburg happened after that. Now, I'm sure there's loads of different cases where that happens, where a city resists perhaps a bit too long, and then as a result of that, there's no chance for parlay, and then it, it gets destroyed. But so Magdeburg definitely... Sorry, if you're not what were the no, rules okay. about that? It's, um, I mean, where soldiers let off, consciously let off the lease and told, look, you just go get now for a certain period... Or yeah. was Saka a, a sign of loss of control of the normal rules? Mm. Mm. It really, I know this is a really annoying answer, but because it was 30 years of war, it really did depend. Because it, it depends on how... Yeah, well, I can, I can explain it in more detail Go as on. to why it depended. And the main reason is because a siege itself can take many different forms so if the if the inhabitants say the defenders decide to resist to the end obviously in that case they're not going to be shown much quarter after the event so again with uh, magdeburg the reason why that was so devastating was because uh the Habsburg commander count tilly he was desperate for some uh 
essentially some supplies for his soldiers. Magdeburg refused time and time again. So even though when the city was surrounded, um, because there was this rumor of getting relieved by the Swedes, uh, the city fathers in Magdeburg held out until the very, very end. And as a consequence of that, the city was pretty much destroyed. Now, Count Tilly's men didn't deliberately destroy the city. They weren't told to destroy Magdeburg. But because they were so angry with what had happened and everything else, fires began to start and a lot of the buildings were made of wood and the fires spread. It was said you could see the city burning from miles away. And of course, the pamphlet uh, wars at the time, all it took was something terrible happening and then to basically attribute this as, as a deliberate act. And for a long time, it was believed as a, as a deliberate act. But even then, those who took part in the, in the sacking, some of them obviously not very, uh, not very moral people, quite opportunistic, but there were others that did their best to protect the citizens of Magdeburg. We have sources that attest to that. So even in the most, even in the darkest, most terrible atrocities, there were people trying to make it uh, less so. And there were also soldiers who were, who were more or less uh, aggressive, more or less dangerous if you were fighting, if you were a German, for example, in Magdeburg, and you would rather surrender to Germans rather than the Croats, who were known to be very brutal in their methods and not very merciful. Um, there's one account provided by Peter H. Wilson of a family who just moved to Magdeburg, the capital of Unlucky, uh, moving to Magdeburg about a year before the actual sack happens, and the, the boy remembers his, his whole family basically trying to leave. Miraculously, the whole family survived, but on their way there, they're essentially rescued by a German soldier who says, we have to leave now because the Croats are coming. And once, once these Croatians arrive, they'll show no quarter and they'll kill or murder or steal whatever isn't uh, like nailed down. So, and I, I definitely think like if you think about it, in terms of like Count Tilly being just one man who probably has his upper circle of, of officers, there's only so much they can do when their army of 30,000 finally breaks into the place it's been trying to get into all this time and has an opportunity for revenge. Hmm. And it wasn't a simply Habsburg thing. Like I mentioned with the, the Swedish case of Frankfurt on the Oder there, the Swedes were more, more than capable of, of doing the same thing. And had they attacked, maybe had they attacked Munich, and besieged it and say the elector of Bavaria didn't give up his capital and he fought to the bitter end, we could have seen similar scenes of slaughter. But because the cases can be so different, it's hard to pin down either way. You were supposed to adhere to laws of honor. If someone surrendered to you, you were supposed to not kill them. And this actually takes a whole new level later on when Louis XIV fights all his wars, mostly in the Spanish Netherlands, the, the kind of pattern is very familiar. He arrives outside with a big army. He offers them surrender. And if they give surrender, their army is free to march out, as it's called, with all the colors. So you can have the band playing. You can have the ceremonial giving over of the sword and everything else. And you can maintain your military honor, essentially, and, and claim you had no other choice but to surrender to overwhelming overwhelming powers. And Louis XIV will attest to your bravery and say you had no other choice and all, all this kind of stuff. So mm. there were way, ways of doing warfare in sieges that, that made it less destructive. But then, I mean, good grief, it, there was the siege of Ostend from 1601 to 04, and 100,000 people died in the course of that three-year war. 100,000 people. Like, it, it was crazy, crazy, crazy amounts of, of... And obviously, in that case... By the time the Spanish got, uh, after that three-year siege, by the time they got into the place, it was Ostend yeah. was just a smoking ruin. So, And the Dutch had all left. So it's, mm. it's hard to really say either way how they would have treated the population yeah. if anyone had still been behind. <laughs> okay. So, um, piece of Westphalia. A uh, mm -hmm. bit overhyped as far as you're concerned. But what did the war resolve if anything i'd actually read in my youth read a book by uh cv wedgwood oh yeah out of day now but anyway she was very uh, disdainful about what the 30 years war achieved i think her summary was uh, nothing really um is she being harsh 
Uh, yes and no. Again, I know I sound like I'm I'm completely on the fence in all situations, but I think but without the thirty, one of those annoying answers, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do apologize, no, but I mean, no, I don't want your apologies, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I mean, the I, now I'm happy to be be corrected in this. It's easy to look cynically at the piece of Westphalia and say it did absolutely nothing. And maybe if it hadn't been so overhyped since, we would be gentler on it. But because we go to the piece of Westphalia looking for some earth-shattering changes to how society functions, we're unlikely to find it there. There wasn't, just to, to, to give you an idea, there wasn't a single mention throughout the entire document of sovereignty in any sense or form at all. Uh, the, the, the idea that the emperor would... That one of the ideas that came out from it was supposedly that the Holy Roman Emperor took a step back and all of his German subjects were allowed to negotiate with each other independently as states. But the the, the different electors, which would have been the main players in, in the Holy Roman Empire, those German states had been doing their own thing for years. Like the elector of Brandenburg, the place which eventually became Prussia, which eventually became, I suppose, the German Empire, that that state, that electorate, made private treaties all the time. They had an alliance with the Dutch. They had marital alliances with with the Elector Palatine, also with the Dutch. Like everyone, it, it it's 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 more helpful to think of these uh, states as connected, kind of on several different levels. So, for example, with Brandenburg, yes, it was a, a state in the Holy Roman Empire whose rulers were loyal to the emperor and had to do what he said, but they also had their own interests to protect. They wanted to uh, protect the Protestant creed, and to do so, they believed they had to team up with other Protestant powers. And as a result, they tied themselves to those different powers for security and for other reasons. So, yeah, I mean, looking at the Peace of Westphalia as, as something that changed everything, I think it's kind of obsolete. I mean, just like any other peace treaty, you could compare it to the Congress of Vienna or the Treaty of, of Versailles. And in, in those three cases, sometimes those treaties have gotten a bad rap. Sometimes we look to them as, as earth-shattering moments. But the reality is a lot of the time, these rulers are trying to do their best to put plasters over the cracks and move on. And Sometimes there's consensus about moving on, but a lot of the time the powers that be decide that they see an opportunity and they want to go to war. Like less than 10 years later, by 1655, the Holy Roman Emperor would be at war with Sweden again. Mm -hmm. So it, it didn't end war in, in any meaningful sense in terms of ending religious war. You don't see a Holy Roman Emperor ever again basically trying to reverse any kind of religious trends. So in that sense, it is a step forward. Um, and in other cases as well, like it, it, it's kind of seen as the moment where the Holy Roman Emperor's powers were weakened. But then you could argue at the same time that the House of Habsburg in Austria, thanks to Wallenstein's exploits, they had already established the nucleus of a standing army. And from the 16, from about the mid 1600s onwards, there's always a strong Habsburg contingent, a strong Austrian Habsburg contingent. The Holy Roman Emperor doesn't have to rely on Bavaria anymore to defend itself. There's always, always a army that answers directly to the Emperor. So that's an important development in itself. It wasn't it enshrined. Uh, it's, it's often been said, I think, that it confirmed French, uh, the rise to, of French power and the decline of Spanish power. Is that true? That, that is true-ish, but the French and the Spanish continued to fight each other till 1659, with, and then they signed the Peace of the Pyrenees, and now that uh, that is really the moment when the the French kind of confirmed their rise, especially because the following year in 1660, Louis XIV is is confirmed in his majority. He says he doesn't need any ministers telling him what to do, and uh, starts to take things into his own hands. But yeah, the um, the Peace of Westphalia, I think you could see it as a moment when Germany moves on from its religious warring past. It wasn't an end to all religious wars, but there wouldn't be the kind of wars for religion or wars over the empire's constitution that we, we see from 1618 to 48. Um, and by and large, from this point, the emperor does find it harder to kind of 
rally the empire around him again. It's it's not unheard of. Like the threat of France is always a very handy handy reason to keep everyone in line. But the states that were the German states that were left in the aftermath, they had their own experiences and they had their own identities that had been forged from the war. So from that alone there really was a good reason to look more closely to your own interests. They would have seen them as German interests rather than Brandenburg or Saxon or Bavarian interests, but they, they certainly didn't need the emperor telling them what to do anymore. So um, one of the other characters that seems strangely absent from the 30 years war uh, and strangely absent from what was in some sense as part of it, at least a religious war, is the Pope. Whereas, you know, when we're talking about, uh, I don't know, Anglo-Spanish conflict, for example, you know, he, uh, his, he is ever present as a figure. Mm. Um, so how did the Pope take the peace of Westphalia? And uh, how did um, it take the war? I mean, you know, what involvement was there? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the Pope because... Uh, I can't remember his name now, but I do know that from 1623 to 43 or, or something to that effect, the same Pope was in place. The problem was with the papacy, it's generally perceived at the time as either being pro Habsburg or pro French. And nobody trusted the Pope to be impartial or mediate or anything like that. He offered several times before the Peace of Westphalia happened. And the Pope was also quite happy. The Pope was pro-Habsburg. This version of the Pope was, anyway. Uh, Pro-Habsburg and very happy with the Edict of Restitution. Didn't want it reversed. So as a consequence of that, because no one trusted the Pope to be impartial and because the the 30 years war Pope, you could call him, died in 1643 and was replaced by someone else, I believe a pro-French candidate, the... uh, it, it, the dynamic was too unstable to be to be relied upon. So the short answer is people probably wouldn't have cared all that much about what the Pope thought. As far as the Hausbergs were concerned, they'd done their duty for the Catholic Church. They tried to reverse the counter They tried to reverse the Reformation. The Counter Reformation had been very successful in Austria and in Bohemia, and they'd done their duty for the old faith. So if the Pope wanted them to continue fighting, which he didn't, he kind of realized that he could only push it so far. And there was concerns about the Ottomans as well and what they would do in the near future. So, yeah, the, the Pope was was uh, pretty much a non-issue at this point, though he did try to get involved. It was more a case not many were listening all that intently. Right. So it's clearly the 30 years it was clearly been an inspiration to you, inspiring you to write a, a history book, but also inspiring you to write uh, some novels. So mm-hmm. tell us about the the book you're writing okay well if you're still with us and i hope you are as you can see i'm really really fascinated by the 30 years war so as a result of that i tried to confront the main problem with this conflict which is that while i'm very interested in it most people are not and i think a main reason for that is they see it as too complex and a great way to reduce that complexity is to give us a window into that era. And a great way to do that is through historical fiction. So my effort in, in this direction is a book called Matchlock and the Embassy. Matchlock, or Matthew Locke, is, is the protagonist's name. He is a Dorset native, and in 1622... He learns of the murder, the brutal murder of his parents, and goes to the Netherlands to try and find out what happened. And 1622, a very early phase of the war, he quickly gets wrapped up in everything because the people who have the answers turn out to be the people in charge of armies and the people uh, defending forts and all this kinds of thing. So he has to travel to the uh, like several different places along the way, meets a lot of characters. I don't want to spoil too much, but don't want to give away does... no plot spoilers. No, obviously, no, no. But uh, he he does meet, for example, with just to give you an idea of the of the interconnectedness uh, of the period. One of his companions is a son of a, a Gaelic earl who went into exile when the plantations of, of Ulster began, and uh, you have this balance of an of of an Irishman and an Englishman. Uh, squabbling together, but also 
having similar goals and trying to get to the end. And I mentioned earlier a conspiratorial element within. I would like to talk about that, but then at the same time, it could spoil it could spoil the surprise. But there, it's it's not just um, goes from A to B, fights an army, uh, character development. There's much more. Uh, there's much more going on, and I think there's elements which will uh, really appeal to a lot of people within that. Well, I, a lot I of mystery, as you know, I read the first few, um, uh, the first bit of it, and I found it very, very compelling. I must admit, I was. I was locked in immediately. You'll be delighted. Yay. To hear that. Uh, Zach, <laughs> great. Um, okay, well, that's great then. So when does, it, when does it come out? Well, it is coming out in mid-September. That is the plan. So it, depending on when our talk here is released, it could be out now already. 15th of September is, is, when, I hand, is when I plan on having it come out. It'll be out in paperback and in ebooks, So you'll be able right. to read it on your Kindle or have it lovingly sitting on your shelf. And the plan is hopefully to have it in, in, in audiobook as well at some point. Because I know listeners, that's if you're anything like me, that's the first thing you'll be asking about is, when's the audiobook coming out? So yeah, you heard it here first. It's going to be an audiobook. It's very good. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Once I make enough money on the actual book, <laughs> I'll invest yes. it in making the audiobook. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're publishing that's, that's yourself, right? I am. Yeah, I'm I'm actually doing this thing called self-publishing, which is something I only figured out existed in the last few months. And now, if you don't know anything about self-publishing, that might sound really iffy. It might sound like something that isn't really the best idea. Oh, self-publishing, that sounds like when I think of self-publishing before, I thought of a guy who's like, hey, have my book. And he's got like 300 of them in his garage or something. And he just <laughs> never sells. He never sells any. And he's that weirdo who got self-published. But Actually, in the last few years, essentially since Kindle became a thing and you could read ebooks, uh, self publishers have made fantastic livings and really incredible communities around the books that they've made. Right. And to, to break the fourth wall, you get more profits as well. There's no middleman giving you a percentage of a percentage of the profits. You're getting all of them. Now, yes, you have to do the work yourself, the promotional work, and the like formatting and getting the covers and all this kind of thing and it can be a bit tedious but kind of like any part of the process like with podcasting david i mean could we uh could we sell our soul to some institution and have them do it um, all for us we would no, never absolutely. podcasting if it had been that way originally yeah yeah so i'm i'm very very excited very excited about self-publishing uh when diplomacy fails publishing is the name of the right? essentially the, the imprint that I've set up to publish it. And I just did that by buying ISBNs, by the way. It's, it's not rocket science, but the result of this is that when you buy the book, the money goes to me. It doesn't go to some publisher. And it means that I can hopefully uh, pay for my PhD and uh, not flunk out due to lack of funds. Not that there's any danger of that, but it's certainly an incentive that I'll be able to turn these profits towards paying for my education, which is really, well, then, really nice. But also... Yeah. That would be a worthy cause, obviously, Zach. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm also 30 in, in October, and for the longest time, I've really wanted to do some kind of history fiction kind of series. I love writing stories. I was that guy in the exam who asked for more paper, and everyone kind of right. looked at him. I'm, yeah. that, I'm that guy. So yeah. <laughs> for, for ages, for ages, I thought, oh, well, I want to, but I can't. I want to, but I can't. And then I think the combination of COVID and also learning about self-publishing really made me realize, like, why not? And if I don't do it now, I, I'm never going to do it. Now is the perfect time. So the plan is to release the first three books. In, right, from so it's going to be a series, that right? It is. It's going to be a series, and it's going to be not just three books. I kind of hesitate to make this official, but I've mm -hmm. mapped them all out and, and planned them anyway, currently looking at 24 Books. Is that right? By books. So yes. You've got a massive schema of uh, yes. uh, Matthew Locke's Life and Times. Yeah, and if you look at that 1622 and the uh, Thirty Years' War goes on to 1648, so mm -hmm. if we mix in a bit of civil war in there as well, there's plenty of him, plenty for him to do, and there's plenty yeah. for him to get involved in, and plenty of people for him to meet. So I've, yeah, I've planned out that. There's the background setting and the characters, which are very important. There's also his own story, the conspiratorial element I mentioned earlier, and that kind of thing. So the story and the narrative is driven forward. Now, I currently intend for it to be 24 books. 
if it turns out that the story goes even further than that, then sure, let's let's see what we can do. But yeah, for now, 20, 24 books is what I what I intend, and I, know. I, I intend to release them. And that's a pretty good ambition, I'd have said. That twenty four books, so, you know, you're thinking big. I would I would argue. Yeah, Very yeah, good. I am but, thinking but big. Course, yeah. if you're thirty years old. I mean, you're practically dead now. <laughs> yeah, that's it. yeah, it's all it's all downhill yeah. now. It's all over. It's all yeah. over. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, it sounds fantastic, Zach. It sounds really good. So I'll put some details on the website, hopefully, for when I post your episode so people can um, people can pick it up. But just briefly now, where, where, where do people to go if they want to buy um, the, the stories of Matthew Locke and the Thirty Years' War? Yeah, sure. You can get it in your local bookshop. I'll be I'll be sending it to this uh, service called Ingram Spark, and Ingram Spark basically sends it out to all the world's bookshops. You'll be able to get it in your library as well. You'll also be able to get it on Amazon, uh, any of the really the online kind of book spaces that that you might go to buy your books, whether that be ebook or paperback or or anything else. So uh, my plan is to make it as accessible as possible not just in the story, but also when you want to buy it, it's not just Amazon and that's all. So there'll, there'll be plenty of options. So uh, yeah, keep an eye out for it. And who knows, you might see it, might see it in your local bookshop at, at, at some point soon. Fantastic. Okay. Well, look, Zach, thank you very much indeed. It's been uh, lovely to have you on the show and you've been very informative and we know a lot more about the 30 years war than we did. So thank you very much and very best of luck with Matthew Locke. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, for the record, uh, lovely listeners of the History of England, this is the first interview I've done about ah, all this. And uh, this is an I'm, I'm very, ex- yes, it's an exclusive. And I'm also very excited because David gave me my very big break. Nearly, it'll be 10 years ago in May 2022 well, since I, I first did my guest episode. As I've said, Zach, you saved my bacon. You know, I've, I'll always be very <laughs> grateful. I didn't have to talk ah, about you're... Robert Bruce whacking whatever his name was over the head you know yeah, um, yeah oh, you're very you. good thank you very much no it's great uh it's fantastic and i love doing these interviews and 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 even just having chats about history i could do this all day which is probably a bit obvious band of tangents <laughs> i go into but yeah thank you so much for having me very it good. was real fun thank you very much zach and uh goodbye everyone good luck and have a great week Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.